It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm here. Doing all right. What's up with you? He says he's all right. He says it. We'll find <laughs> out. This is episode 199. This is our new November 2022 research review, which, as the name implies, is where we review some breaking research all of these papers i think are from actually like they're from this month which is wild that's cool in, yeah but you know how the you know how it works it's like the they get published online and they say they're published like in the future like you sent yeah. me multiple papers <laughs> that were published the day after you sent them and i'm like guys just chronologically this makes no sense that makes me suspect of your peer review process your publication <laughs> process but yeah all of these are from november so we're going to talk about everything from uh, mushrooms, uh, or no, as the youths call them shrooms, or uh, do they call them boomers? I, have you ever I don't heard know, that? Man. <laughs> <laughs> not in this, not in this. Oh my gosh. Okay. This is an aside. Have you there there when I was doing my ED, uh, rotation, uh, in residency, uh, we, you know, if we were discharging a patient and they needed to pick up a prescription, but they didn't have insurance, we would always try to, you know, hook them up with a good rx coupon or at least tell them about that because usually you can get some discounts this podcast is not sponsored by good rx but that's just a cool thing that like service that they offer for free uh there was a at a time there was like a, a not a competitor but a different website called street rx and basically it would like identify individuals who had street drugs that were willing to sell them to you <laughs> and apparently this was very very popular in los angeles when i was when I was there, how did this I do, come to your attention? Is the next yeah, the ED does yeah because he was like he was like yeah I see you're using good RX that's that's good uh, have you ever heard of Street RX and I was like no he's like yeah I've had some patients come in from from that I'm like oh interesting um, this is not an endorsement for either good RX or Street RX I should just say um, but yeah so we're gonna talk about uh, some psilocybin we're gonna talk about um, some dietary supplements for dyslipidemia, high cholesterol, and we're going to talk about the Baraki exertion scale. Now, if you don't know what the Baraki exertion scale is, this was a April Fool's blog post I put up. What do you, you think? That's like six years ago now. Has it been that long? I mean, I think it was 2017. <laughs> so that's you know, it's gonna it'll be six years this next uh, this next mar uh, next April. Basically, when Baraki lifts heavy, his eyeballs pop out of the sockets. 2018. It's 2018. All right. So don't want to date ourselves here. <laughs> but basically, when Baraki lifts heavy, his eyeballs pop out of the socket. And uh, so, you know, his facial contortion was the proxy for RPE. And uh, we kind of got a little similar a similar thing here. So we'll talk, we'll talk about that. Talk about some eye stuff. And uh, But anyway, before we get into that. Everything, everything going okay? You're actually, yeah, you're I'm doing in, doctor in stuff? The, yeah, I'm doing real doctor stuff, as we say. Uh, wrapping up two weeks in the hospital uh, in about two more days. So then I'll get a little bit of a, a stretch off. So I've had a lot of good uh, good patient encounters, a ton of good teaching with my team and my students, and things are going okay with them at the moment, yeah. Yeah, I always wonder, like, okay, so during these two-week stretches, would you rather have like a super busy service, you know, like uh, quite a bit of turnover. So, you, you know, admitting, discharging, admitting, discharging, a lot of learning, a lot of teaching, but not like the cases are, I would say relatively straightforward because you can identify them, treat them, manage, and then, you know, discharge or, or would you want relatively light on the admissions and light on the discharge? Cause you have more, 
either complicated patients or the dispo is difficult or yeah. which which scenario would you prefer? I mean, I feel like I've I've had uh, experience with a ton of them. I mean, where I trained in residency was kind of a regular county hospital unit affiliated with the the university system in in San Antonio, and that place was effectively a madhouse with how busy it was all the time. All of our residency teams were packed to the max every day, uh, constant discharging and admission, all the, admitting all the time. And it made it so that we had a ton of kind of uh, experiential learning and on the job learning and training, but less time for effective kind of like didactic teaching from our staff and our mentors and things like that. And then where I moved for my first job after that um, in San Antonio was a much lighter kind of volume, like a moderate volume place. It was not quite as busy and I had a, a, a bunch more time to, to teach, but it was still like a major medical center within the, the military system. So we had plenty of complex cases and things like that. So that was a nice balance. And where I am now in, in El Paso is probably an even slightly lower volume place. And so I have a bit more time to teach. Um, and, and so at the moment, I mean, I have a, ver a, a variation on my team right now of some patients who've been there for, you know, a week or two, and then a bunch who are there for a couple days, and then most who are there for, you know, a day or, or two days or something. We can get them quickly, you know, uh, get their issue addressed pretty quickly and get them turned around and, and on their way. So I think that, you know, there's no substitute for experiencing all of those things. And I think that uh, the, the, the dose of volume, I guess, that these yeah. <laughs> uh, that I that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis here is lower than I have in the past. And it just affords me more time to do what I actually like to do, which is more of the more of the teaching aspect with the with the trainees. So, yeah, I wonder. So, when do you guys usually finish rounds? Because this is always how I would rate my attending, like when <laughs> rounds were finished. Yeah. Because you know we would show up at the crack of dawn, right? Pre round, and then you round with the other residents, yeah. the other you know for turnover, and then you're rounding with the attending at some point later. And if yep. we could wrap it up. <laughs> by yeah. lunchtime so we could like do the do the work you know get everybody nice and tucked in so yeah that was great but if it if it's like oh let's take lunch and then come back definitely oh not boy. oh boy i don't ever do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> most days on average i start at 8 30 if things are super busy super slammed or if i need to get my team out for the day uh, let's send them home then i will show up a little earlier and start earlier um and and so basically the the busier things are or the earlier i need to get my team out the earlier i'll show up and start as early as 7 or 7 30 but that's pretty uncommon so most days is 8 30 start and then i pretty much have things wrapped up usually by 10 30 if things are particularly busy then it might go a little bit later but usually what i'll do is i'll hit the high points with my team and say, go, go do what you got to do. And then I'll see the rest of the folks myself. Uh, so I'm never keeping them all the way until noon or definitely not, not past noon. Cause I know what that's like and uh, <sighs> not cool. So, I mean, I, we said, uh, we, we had a, a pretty good day last week where we had, I think we started, it wasn't, it wasn't a crazy busy day, but we started at, I don't know, seven thirty or something. We had 13 folks uh, to see and we saw all of them and discharged six or seven of them and had the team done and out by like 11 or 1130, which was like a pretty good day for them. To, so, all right. Last last question related to rounding. Okay. I'm just curious <laughs> on your experience. When what rotation during your training at any point was the had the longest rounds? Um I mean, I think it probably had to be probably some of the internal medicine, depending on who I was working with. Um I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I is either toss up for my pediatric rotation in med school. I was like, it was like neurosurge room and like like there's four total specialties i recall but i don't remember the other two but they were like pretty complex stuff and it's yeah. just like if you're admitted to the service 
we got a lot to, we got a lot to talk about yeah. either that or, or the icu at some point even though the acuity is higher and you're trying to like figure out all right what are we doing yeah. what are we doing let's just the the, the severity was high and you're just like yep, it's gonna yeah, take each patient takes a while when like six different organ systems are failing so yeah plus the actual reporting like i just oh man i feel for whoever the attendings or senior residents were that i was presenting to and i'm just like okay we're gonna start with this system and go through and they're like <laughs> oh no come on let's go feigenbaum i'm like i don't know what i'm doing uh anyway yeah all right well cool the training's going okay you just you just got out of the pool yep i lifted after i got back from work um did some light sumo pulls for sets of 10 and then went over to the pool so yeah nice i am in full bodybuilding mode and uh, let me tell you i i have had some unique doms in places that uh normally normally never been sore to you yeah i'm like what is this distal aspect of my quadriceps that I've never known existed before? Or I, I did my first set of calf raises in my, in my life last week. And I've now I've done them twice since. Okay. One, what a stupid exercise. Just like, <laughs> and me filming them. I'm like, Oh yeah, the, the dudes are going to go crazy for this. But like, ugh. Yeah, calves are sore, and and you know it's like when you stretch in bed, you like lay down, and you're like, Ugh, and you're I I was actively not doing it because I was afraid of getting a cramp of some yeah, sort. Yeah, yourself Charlie horses with those. Yeah, things. and I'm like, no, no, I don't have anybody to help me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, but uh, you know the good news is some great YouTube content coming out on training vlogs. I've got my adductor rehab stuff that's all done and dusted so that'll be up soon the shoulder rehab from the dislocation in february uh my meat prep uh for the meat that i did in may plus some bodybuilding stuff got all that the podcasts are we're uploading those so you guys are gonna see austin's post swim hair which is uh it's a good look it's like, <laughs> <coughs> it's like california beach hair but you're not in california so yeah you got that uh, we just need to put some sun in, in your hair. I think it's not as, yeah, it's not as dead and silvery as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do you, do you put a swim cap on when you go swimming? Not these days. No, no, no. But if you were, if you were getting more serious, you if I was going to race, then yes, I would for sure. Yeah. I just feel, okay. What if your hair was a little longer though? Do you think you would just do it because your hair would be in the way or just yeah. be annoying? Yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. I just, oh man, put the swim. That was my least favorite part of swimming is putting the swim cap on and then you're just like, you feel like your head's being squeezed out in like any part of that helmet no problem swim cap no <laughs> not for me uh so yeah well we got a bunch of youtube stuff up uh so just search barbell medicine on youtube you can check that out we've got seminars live in-person seminars coming up we got one this weekend we have one spot left in los angeles we're we're otherwise sold out for los angeles so if you're in the los angeles southern california area or can be this weekend and you're like man these two guys sound like some people i'd like to learn from and you want to get some coaching, plus you want to meet Alan Thrall, Leah Lutz, Tom Capitelli. We're all going to be at the seminar this weekend and a bunch of other auxiliary, not auxiliary, but a bunch of our other staff is going to be there too. Uh, other live in-person seminars, the new, brand new, and improved pain and rehab seminar is in Miami in January. Dr. Baraki and I will also be there hanging out. So uh, if you're on the fence about going to that seminar, can confirm we will be there, should go, should be a good time. Uh, and they will also have additional two-day health and performance seminars in Atlanta and New York in 2023. So all of that is linked in the description below. Okay, I think it is time now to get in to this week's podcast. Again, this is episode 199. I'm with Dr. Austin Baraki. This is the November 2022 research review. First up, bombshell of a paper, bombshell. 
The title of the paper is Single Dose Psilocybin for Treatment-Resistant Episode of Major Depression. This is by Goodwin et al. and a very large research group uh, across the globe. Um, this was published in the November 2022 uh, uh, edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. Did you look at the author, the author list here? Uh-oh. <clears throat> well, uh-oh. All right. You got a waveform? Yeah, I think I'm back now. Okay, cool. Uh, so yeah, did you look, did you look at the author list here? I mean, I have it up in front of me. It is a, yeah. I mean, a lot of the big New England Journal papers tend to have a lot of authors, but this is even for that. It's on the high side. <laughs> this looked to me like a, like a guy, like a clinical practice guideline. It's like you got, I mean, I, I don't know the exact number, but at least 30 authors. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I wonder where this came from. And it's all over the globe. So pretty, yeah. pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Which is pretty uh, interesting given that there were, you know, the, the, the actual number of patients in the study, it was decent size, but not like, you know, multiple tens of thousands of patients or something like that. No, 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 no. But this is a phase two clinical trial. This was funded by industry. Uh, we'll talk about who funded it and kind of what they did. But first, just kind of a little background on what is treatment resistant uh, major depressive episode. So a major depressive episode, uh, just in and of itself, um, versus other depression subtypes is diagnosed in individuals that have five or more of the following symptoms for at least two consecutive weeks. And it's not clearly attributable to another medical condition, uh, or in the context of like substance use. Uh, and at least one of the symptoms has to be depressed mood or loss of interest, which is also known as anhedonia. So they need to have either depressed mood or loss of interest. And, uh, at least four of these other things. So significant weight loss, which is about 5% or more in a month or decrease in appetite on uh, most days, insomnia or hypersomnia, which is just sleeping a lot nearly every day, restlessness or slow movements nearly every day, fatigue or loss of energy, again, nearly every day, feelings of worthlessness or guilt nearly every day, diminished ability to think or concentrate nearly every day, um, and or recurrent thoughts of death, suicidal ideation, uh, or a suicide attempt. So that, that's kind of how we diagnose a major depressive episode. And generally, when people get diagnosed with this, we uh, initiate treatment. Um, this is a really common issue, just major depressive episodes. Uh, depression is common with about 5% of the population experiencing uh, depression over a year. That's globally. In the US and Europe, it's about 10% um, over a year with a lifetime prevalence of 21%. So again, very common. Um, as far as what makes something a treatment resistant uh, episode of major depressive uh, episode, basically it's, there's no firm definition, but most authors will define this as trying uh, at least two uh, agents and monotherapy, which basically means you're just taking one medication and it not adequately treating uh, these symptoms. Uh, just as a, a additional background, we know that resistance training reduces the symptoms um, and that it doesn't seem to matter whether strength ultimately improves as a result of training, suggesting some independent mechanism of benefit outside of just getting stronger. Uh, however, exercise uh, in all the studies that is basically used uh, to uh, see what its effect is on a major depressive episode is not used as monotherapy, meaning that they're not comparing like, oh, yeah, just go train uh, and get stronger. Uh, versus, you know, take an SSRI or other sort of medication. Um, but yeah, usually as an adjunct treatment, it seems to have some benefit. In any case, again, this 
treatment-resistant episode of major depression basically means they tried two medications separately and it did not work. And then uh, in this particular study, these folks uh, had a pretty persistent um, uh, episode of major depression that was just treatment-resistant for a long period of time. So let's talk about the actual study. Again, this is a phase two clinical trials funded by industry. So the company is called Compass Pathfinder. They're a company trying to develop psilocybin therapy for treatment-resistant depression. As far as what is a phase two clinical trial, these typically recruit a small number of patients to assess safety. They also do that in phase one clinical trials, but it's a little bit bigger in phase two. So they're trying to assess safety. They're also trying to find the correct dose for efficacy, see if it actually affects the disease they're trying to treat and also study how the drug is metabolized and stuff like that. So they can move on to phase three clinical trials, which again, they either compare to another medication or a placebo or something like that and uh, so on down the line. So let's talk about what psilocybin is for a second. So this is a serotonergic psychedelic drug derived from mushrooms. Serotonergic means that it causes an increase in serotonin to be released from various uh, serotonin releasing nerves. Uh, And psychedelic basically means mind, psych uh, basically means mind and then manifesting means uh, that's where delic kind of uh, uh, comes from implying that psychedelics can expand the mind this was actually coined by a researcher i think it's i think it was orman in the 50s and yeah nobody's like gone back to think hey maybe we should rename this or like define (laughs) what the word actually is Uh, but yeah can uh, cause like uh, uh, hallucinogenic sort of experiences and so it qualifies as a psychedelic even though the word itself is not really well defined. So the proposed mechanism based on functional MRI data of psilocybin basically shows decreased blood flow to the amygdala. That's a, a small area of the brain that is involved in memories, emotions, experiences, things threat, of that nature. Threat perception and things like that. All too. sorts of stuff. Yeah. So yeah. we talk about pain, you know, mediation, modulation, pain experience. The amygdala is heavily involved in that. We talk about fear. Amygdala is heavily involved in that. Um, and yeah, so decreased blood flow to the amygdala, altered brain circuit connectivity, and so on that basically disrupts the circuits in the brain underlying maladaptive thoughts of guilt and ruminations about one's inadequacy. And that is a direct quote from like the proposed <laughs> mechanism of action of psilocybin paper. Um, link that obviously in the description below as well. Now, I don't want people to think about this like, oh, just it's your brain anatomy that's messed up or your brain function that's messed up. And we just, you know, alter the blood flow and bada bing, bada boom, depression cured. Uh, so I don't want to reduce it down to that. Just like the SSRIs. When we talked about that paper, you know, when they showed that you know, the serotonin levels didn't necessarily change that much. Yeah. Well, let's not reduce depression down to like a serotonin deficiency, for example. Uh, as far as previous data on this, there are three trials in humans basically showing efficacy of psilocybin um, on major depressive disorder, small patient groups. One of the studies, they combined it with, I think it was citalopram. Um, another study was in individuals with cancer who had uh, depression. Again, small sample size. And I don't remember the third uh, paper off the top of my head, but again, pretty small uh, sample sizes. So this paper was actually a much larger sample size. So number of subjects enrolled. And uh, a, the unique feature of this was also that it was treatment resistant, major depressive disorder rather than just run of the mill, uh, major depressive episode. So there were 22 clinical sites involved in the study in 10 different countries, and they enrolled 233 patients with treatment-resistant major depression. They were randomized into one of three arms. One of the treatment arms got 25 milligrams of psilocybin. Another group got 10 milligrams of psilocybin, and the other group, the control group, got one milligram of psilocybin. Now, Austin, 
when you sent me the paper originally, I was like, no control. And you're like, well, the one milligram psilocybin group was the control. Why, why would they do something like that? Yeah, it's, it's challenging to, uh, I mean, if you think about the quote unquote gold standard for most pharmaceutical like drug trials is this idea of like a blinded placebo controlled trial where the patients and preferably the researchers as well don't know which patient got what. Um, but as you can imagine, it can be rather tricky <laughs> to give a completely inert kind of placebo um, to uh, to patients in this kind of a trial because they will very rapidly figure out that they did not in fact get the psychedelic kind of drug. Now, of course, even, you know, they, they use this one milligram dose and it may have had a little bit of an impact on some, on some patients. And we'll talk about some of the limitations of this, you know, uh, paper when we, when we get towards the end, but the idea was that it's low enough that, um, you know, it would effectively serve as a control in this situation. And perhaps they might feel a little bit of some, some tingles or something, <laughs> something like that, yeah. such that it's not immediate unblinding of like, oh, I realized that I didn't actually get you know, the study drug, and then you kind of effectively figure out, you unblind yourself, and then you figure it out, and then your outcomes are, you know, worsened because you're not actively blinded. Yeah, like you said, they could have used an antihistamine or some other sort of medication. Yeah, there, there, there are trials that use so-called active placebos. And so that is a concept where like, say you're using something, uh, you're, you're studying a drug that, that provides some sort of like, you know, effect, be it on your cognition or makes you feel a certain way or, or something like that. They will use a different medicine that works by a completely different mechanism, independent of the one that you're studying that will have some kind of effect, right? So if it's like, you know, a, a medicine that's intended to relieve anxiety, and then they'll give, you know, that the study drug, and then they'll give something else that works by a completely different way that may have some, you know, potential feelings like that as a result, so that you still are remain blinded to whether you got the actual drug, and then and then they can kind of uh, have a little bit more rigor to it that way. Um, so that's kind of the idea with kind of active controls or active placebos. Yep. So those were the three arms that the 233 patients got uh, randomized into. Uh, and so, yeah, all of these patients got one dose uh, and then were basically kept in the clinical setting for six to eight hours while they went on their journey. This was led by a therapist and an assistant therapist. They had a specialized playlist, which I could not find the contents of the specialized playlist, but they made sure the authors made sure that we knew this was not just, you know, somebody's Spotify playlist called like short and thick or something like that. It was <laughs> a special playlist. And they also used eye shades so that the uh, subjects did not uh, perseverate or focus on any one thing uh, via visual stimuli. So, yeah, at baseline, none of the patients could be on any treatment for depression. But if throughout this sort of it was a 12 week long uh, trial, uh, they could be started on other uh, medications for depression during that time. The average age of the participant was about 40, 39.8 years old, uh, half approximately were female and half were male, uh, 92% were white. Um, and the average current depressive episode was greater than a year. So basically these folks had been seen, managed, treated for depression, but inadequately or uh, basically did not work and that the current episode was lasting for greater than a year. Uh, as far as to uh, assess outcomes, they used what's called a Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale, the MADRS score. Uh, this is a 10-question questionnaire about feelings, thoughts, function, uh, etc. And each question is rated zero to six points. Zero points, basically being quote unquote normal or better without depression, for example, uh, and six would indicate greater uh, greater impact 
of depression. That was their primary endpoint. They did this MADRS uh, evaluation at weeks one, three, six, nine, and 12 at the end of the study duration. They had some secondary endpoints uh, as well. Uh, basically, they were looking for can we get at least a 50% decrease in the MADRS score from baseline to week three? Uh, can we keep that uh, that sort of uh, reduction? Um, they would call that remission uh, uh, with a MADRS score less than 10. So that would be like a quote unquote normal score. Uh, and then was it sustained? So basically, did they sustain that throughout the entire study period all the way to week 12? So what happened? All right. So at baseline, the depression was moderate. The average MADRS score was 20 to 30 and about a third of the patients and greater than 30 uh, in about two thirds of the patients. But basically this was similar across all of the arms. So the folks getting 25 milligrams, 10 milligrams, and one milligram, basically no differences between groups. Um, as far as the, maybe a confounding variable, as far as how, how many of the folks got uh, initiated on additional treatment for depression? Uh, about 33% of the 25 milligram, milligram group started uh, treatment for depression within the study period. 24% um, in the 10 milligram group started an additional treatment for depression during the study period. And then 20% of the one milligram control group uh, started an additional treatment for depression in the 12-week study period. All right. And so the results... Out of 79 individuals in the 25 milligram group, 37% saw a response and uh, 29% had remission at week three. In the 10 milligram group, 19% saw a response and 9% had remission uh, in their symptoms by week three. Again, that's an MADRS score less than 10. In the one milligram group, 18% saw a response and uh, 8% had a remission by week three. At 12 weeks at the end of the study period, 20% 20, 20 of the 25 milligram group had a sustained response uh, compared to 5 and 10% of the groups in the 10 milligram and 1 milligram uh, arms, uh, respectively. The average MADRS score change was 12 in the 25 milligram group, whereas uh, the 10 and 1 milligram groups were smaller at 12 weeks, about 7, and the difference was not statistically significant from each other. So basically, they did not seem to have a very large response that was maintained throughout the study period. Uh, of note, the predefined threshold for like a minimal uh, improvement according to clinic, uh, clinician evaluation using the MADRS questionnaire is eight points. So anything less than eight points, the clinician probably wouldn't be able to pick up uh, reliably. Um, and then as far as patient ratings, if they did this on themselves, it's about five points. So how I interpret that is that the 25 milligram group clearly had a big response that would be sufficiently notable mm -hmm. in clinical practice, whereas the other two groups, maybe not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of note also the average, uh, SSRI effect. So that's probably the most commonly prescribed medication, uh, monotherapy for depression. The average SSRI effect, uh, with respect to MADRS scores is about 2.99 points, which is significantly less than what they saw in this. And this is a one-time treatment. It's not like these, these folks were getting, psilocybin once a week. It was once at the beginning of the study, and then they just kind of looked and, and, and observed these patients throughout the 12-week study period. So pretty, pretty big effect. Uh, other things that are important, the adverse effects. So about two-thirds of the 25-milligram group had an adverse event. Uh, about three-fourths of the 10-milligram group had an adverse effect, and over half of the 1-milligram group had an adverse effect after administration of the psilocybin. The most frequent reported adverse effects were headache, nausea, dizziness, and fatigue on the day of administration. So 
I have not been on a psilocybin uh, journey just yet, so I don't know if that's normal or not, but those were the most commonly reported adverse events. Um, there were additional adverse events reported from weeks three to week 12. Uh, they were pretty sparse, but the most important ones were the uh, suicidal ideation. Basically, uh, there were individuals in each group that reported an increase in suicidal ideation and suicide-related behavior, but there was a significant amount of suicidal ideation and suicide behavior in baseline in all groups. Uh, but you know, the take-home here is that 14% of all of the studied individuals showed a worsening of suicidal ideation. So there, you know, there are no free lunches in biology. So there was some, some of that uh, going on with the adverse events, but uh, pretty, pretty big effect on, on uh, depression overall. Uh, Austin, do you want to talk about some limitations of the study? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that we need to dissect this to, to death the way we would in a, in a regular journal club kind of context, but I think it's worth mentioning that again, these kind of medicines and studying them makes it pretty difficult to actually blind people. And so in this paper, one of the big limitations is that they did not actually, so, so one of the strategies that you can use when studying them is you can actually ask patients in the study, like what treatment group do you think that you were in? Because then that will tell you, did they unblind themselves yeah. in the course they, of the study? Were they able to figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. Because then that would impact your interpretation of, of their results, right? So in this study, they did not assess participants' ability to dose, to, to guess their dose assignment. And so, you know, the, the, the researchers were not, they're not actually able to say how effective the blinding was in this particular study. And so I'll compare that, there's another uh, pretty recent trial of psilocybin, I guess this is being researched more and more recently, that came up in the context of alcohol use disorder, or uh, uh, and, and they basically compared similarly, it must have been by the same group, because the design was very similar, they also mm. had a specialized playlist and eye shades. <laughs> so when you when you mentioned that, I was like, they did that in this, <laughs> in this other study too. Sure. And so they compared psilocybin and psychotherapy for alcohol use issues compared with psychotherapy and, and placebo, and they showed a marketed reduction in heavy alcohol use, like much a bigger reduction compared to what was seen in uh, psychotherapy plus placebo. But when they looked, they actually assessed, you know, were patients able to guess what treatment group they were in, whether psilocybin or placebo. And like almost 94% of people in that sub in that study were able to correctly guess their treatment assignment. So that also mm. kind of makes you wonder, <laughs> you know, it makes you interpret it a little bit differently when it's like, oh, everybody like immediately figured out what group they were in. Um, whereas that was not assessed in this particular study. So that's like one of the more glaring ones that I see out of this, uh, this one relating to to depression. Yeah. And it's not that we're like worried about, oh, were people able to figure out what arm they were in? It's just that, all right, we know that we're getting at least some expectation potentially uh, in the results here and placebo sort of uh, mediated benefit. You know, if people can guess w that they're uh, uh, getting a higher dose, they might expect that to work better, for example, and and have better outcomes. And so, yeah, you you would prefer if you really wanted to be very confident that a particular intervention, medical intervention worked, that people would not be able to guess at all. Um, that means that your control group, you know, and your, and your intervention groups were, uh, you know, so similar that people couldn't really tell, but you know, that's, that is, yeah, one of the limitations here. Uh, the, what I take home from this is that this seems pretty promising. I mean, when you compare the MADRS results, uh, which is again, a validated questionnaire used to assess treatment efficacy for depression, that big, big improvement in the 25 milligram group, bigger than, you know, SSRI data, uh, has been to date. Um, that seems 
pretty pretty great. Even when you consider the side effect profile, yeah, you, you don't like to see that you know a substantial portion of all treatment groups had an adverse effect, uh, particularly the worsening of suicidal ideation. But at the same time, like there's a black box warning on almost every SSRI I can think of that pertains to suicidal ideation or suicide-related behavior because there's a non-zero portion of the population that's going to get a little worse with yeah, an SSRI. Yeah. So Yeah, that's why we're supposed to kind of check in and follow up with these patients pretty frequently in the early phase of treatment with those kind of medicines in case there's somebody who may experience that. Yeah, yeah. but uh, the, and the, also the way, the way I think about this is that if you were thinking about like what is the most severe type of major depressive disorder, it'd be the treatment resistant ones, mm-hmm. you know, because they basically tried a bunch of stuff, hasn't really worked, and they've kind of per- persisting in this depressed state. And so that group of folks might have the most to gain here. And so maybe that's why the effect is so big that we're seeing, you know, because particularly interesting for a one time thing. I think that's like, you know, yeah. pretty, pretty unique as far as a lot of medical treatments go, that yeah. it's just a one time thing. And you're, and I mean, it's not to say that you're done indefinitely, but at least as far as the study duration went, like it had, there were a fair number of people who had a sustained effect, which for people who have a, again, by definition, treatment resistant condition is, is pretty interesting. Yeah. And they got there by week three and were able to like sustain that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I would have done some more review on esketamine, the uh, intranasal ketamine, just to compare the results there. Cause that's another, uh, currently FDA approved treatment for major depressive disorder that is a one-time shot, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and seems to work, uh, very, very quickly. So yeah, that would have been nice to compare here, but, uh, uh, I will be curious to see where the research goes. Again, this was a phase two clinical trial. I expect that the phase three clinical trials will be even larger, probably expand groups to not only just treatment resistant major depressive uh, disorder, but also, you know, as initial monotherapy, for example, just to see how that compares to SSRI, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And and I know I, I do get the sense that this kind of whether you call it psychedelic or hallucinogenic or whatever kind of, uh, you know, drug category is being researched more also in other conditions, particularly in the context of PTSD is another place where there's a lot of research into that. That's, um, yep. Coming up. People are going to listen to this and they're gonna be like, all right, cool. So I just microdose at home. Is that what you guys are saying? It's like, so no, they weren't microdosing. They weren't taking this on a regular basis. This was like a one-time deal, uh, at least for the study period. And, uh, further like the, purity, the dosage, you know, all, all the stuff that goes into like pharmaceutical, uh, development, manufacturing, distribution, et cetera. I don't know that I trust the ethics of, you know, drug dealers. Guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But my guy, no, my guy would never do that. It's like, Oh, he's got a mass spec at his place. Like he's just, you know, he's, he's got a PhD in chemistry, you know, and a whole team of people working on every single batch. Yeah. So, um, I'll be curious to see how this, uh, how this develops. This is certainly interesting. Um, and seems at least promising from, from this standpoint, guys go and should we, should we all go invest in compass, uh, pathfinder to see, see how they're, <laughs> this is not financial advice. I am not a financial professional, so don't, <laughs> don't do that. Okay. So that was the first study we reviewed this, uh, on this month's research review. Second study is called the comparative effects of low dose resuvastatin placebo and dietary supplements on lipids and inflammatory biomarkers. This is by Laffin et al. This was published in the November issue of the journal of American college of cardiology. So again, just from this month, um, Okay, as far as some background, dyslipidemia is very common. Uh, people call this high cholesterol or my cholesterol's out of whack. Uh, but yeah, the medical 
clinical term is dyslipidemia. Its prevalence is increased in patients with premature uh, coronary heart disease, uh, being as high as 75 to 85% compared with uh, approximately 40 to 48% in age match controls without coronary heart disease. So basically, if you have elevated cholesterol, uh, your risk of having uh, premature coronary heart disease, or as we've called it on this podcast, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, ASCVD, goes up markedly. Um, okay, Austin, just as a quick review, I know we've done podcasts. You've got a three-part article series on this. What is dyslipidemia, though, if you really want to define it? And then I'm going to, you know, I just used the terms interchangeably, lipids and cholesterol, but we know that's not true. So just give people a lay of the land here quickly. Yeah, uh, I think probably my my spiel that may have mentioned on the podcast before. We are mostly water. There are a lot of <laughs> biologically active things that don't dissolve in water. These are called lipids. Cholesterol is a form of lipid. And because we are mostly water, yet we need these things that don't dissolve to circulate in our bloodstream. We need special carriers. These are called lipoproteins. Examples of those are low-density lipoprotein, LDL, high-density lipoprotein, HDL, a bunch of others. This gets really complicated really fast, but that's probably sufficient for the the you know ten million foot overview of this of this topic. And so the the idea here is that we want the trafficking, the transport of these things throughout our body to be you know very efficient is a way to think about it. And to the extent that things get kind of backed up, to the extent that we have a lot of lipid uh, of these these substances uh, accumulating in our blood. Uh, circulation that are not being cleared particularly quickly, that can lead to high concentrations in the blood. So high blood levels, that's what comes out on a blood test. And so the higher your levels are, and the longer they are high for across the lifespan, um, then the higher uh, risk that translates into. And so we see people who have extremely high blood cholesterol, blood lipid levels from birth. They have exceptionally high risk of of heart attacks and, and, and cardiovascular disease early in life. Um, for people who have a more modest elevation, it can take many more years to develop heart disease. So we might see heart attacks in the you know 60s, 70s uh, uh, kind of time frame. And then some people who are fortunate enough to be able to maintain uh, very low blood lipids among their other risk factors for heart disease over the whole lifespan, then they may go their whole life and uh, not be impacted by this disease process at all. And they may end up you know passing away of something else altogether. So that's kind of the, the, sh- the short story on it. Yep. Uh, and so why this is a subject of inquiry, about a third of adults in the United States are using some sort of complementary and alternative medicine. Uh, cholesterol is included as one of the top 10 conditions for which adults are using this complementary and alternative medicine. Uh, fish oil and garlic, for example, are two supplements that are commonly used for the reduction of high cholesterol and are among the top 10 most frequently, frequently used supplements. Uh, we know that reducing lifelong exposure to um, high cholesterol, high uh, apolipoprotein B containing particles reduces the risk of heart disease. Uh, on a standard lipid panel, apolipoprotein B containing particles uh, are approximated by non-HDL cholesterol, uh, the primary component of which is LDL uh, cholesterol. And so when you get your standard lipid panel and it gives you an LDL number, which is calculated, that is, you know, representative uh, from that test as your apolipoprotein B containing fraction uh, of lipids. And so we'd like to get that number lower uh, if it is elevated. Uh, so that, that brings another question. What is a normal like LDL cholesterol number? And uh, what like when would you start treating somebody uh, for that number? 
Yeah, this is a complicated question for for a few different reasons. Um, there is not really a th th there's a biological gradient as there are with many things, and what I mean by that is that you can have any number of LDLC in the blood or LDL you know cholesterol value um, or any number of these particles. It's a continuous kind of variable, and risk scales with this you know continuous spectrum. So risk goes up continuously over the lifespan as these levels go up. Um, and, and stay high over the lifespan. There is not, uh, you know, as with many things, we artificially kind of break it down or artificially dichotomize it into normal and abnormal or like normal and high, which is really not a great way to do this. And as a result, it has led to a whole bunch of unnecessary confusion. And mm -hmm. so I get into the details of this in the part three cholesterol article on the website because there are people who say, for example, um, they'll look back at some data and they'll say, well, you know, some big fraction of people who had heart attacks in this study had normal cholesterol levels. And again, it's like, well, what is normal? <laughs> because we know that once levels get low enough, um, atherosclerosis halts. It does not progress when your blood lipid levels are low enough. And so the argument could be made that for those who had heart attacks with supposedly normal cholesterol levels, because at one point the normal total cholesterol level was like 200 milligrams per deciliter total. Mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, very arguable, and, and I would in fact argue this, that a total, uh, if we're looking at total, for example, that a total cholesterol level of 200 for you know your average person is probably high. <laughs> it's yep. probably, yep. you know, insofar as it is going to impact their, their lifelong risk. And so um, I really dislike breaking like dichotomizing into artificially you know normal and high i i the way we use these numbers is in context of their age and a whole bunch of other kind of risk factors and try to get a sense of what is their you know medium term risk and what is their lifetime risk and kind of try to treat accordingly right so if i have somebody who has you know a moderate elevation but they're you know a teenager then i'm going to be more concerned about that person because I know that this moderate elevation is going to really add up like the quote unquote area under the curve over their whole lifespan. Right. Whereas if I have somebody who is, you know, 88 years old and they have a moderate elevation and they're, you know, doing their thing and I'm probably going to be much less aggressive <laughs> in that kind mm -hmm. of a situation. Right. So there's a spectrum of these values and we kind of try to incorporate it into an overall spectrum of risk. And so treatment decisions is uh, a much more complex kind of decision-making process than I can kind of get into here. But the articles that I wrote on the website um, are one way that can get into the details on that. Um, we also frequently have people either post on our forums or pursue consultations. You know, they'll, they'll do a consult with me or something to, to talk about this or talk with your doctor about it and they will very likely be able to help you with it. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it, it's important for folks to take away that w if you get a standard lipid test, the LDLC number represents these apolipoprotein B containing particles. And we know that if you were trying to like correlate one value related to lipids and heart disease risk, the amount of apolipoprotein B containing particles, that's like that's that's the most predictive number and you can get that test special uh, that specialty test in addition to a standard lipid test but if you just have a standard lipid panel well that's your LDL. Yeah, the easiest way the easiest way off the standard lipid panel is just to calculate what's called the non-hdl cholesterol take the total mm -hmm. subtract hdl you get a non-hdl and then if we wanted to really simplify this and reduce it down for people who have no history of heart disease at all um, and they're otherwise doing fine, if that non-HDL is less than about 130 milligrams per deciliter, then I'm feeling okay about you. But you prefer it to be that, like 70 or 50. Well, I mean, 
we know that populations who have you like you could obliterate all risk of heart disease if you got levels <laughs> down, yep. down that low but that's yep. just unfeasible for most people in our modern environment to to do that so yeah and then for people who have a history of heart disease then it's a whole different calculus and we try to we do try to get it down as low as possible to reduce the risk of having another kind of heart attack or stroke or whatever they had yep yeah they're basically uh more predisposed to having an a bad outcome unless yep. they get that thing down and get it down now because again yep. just over time lifespan the, exposure yep exactly okay so this study was of interest because we just want to know what does the evidence say on the, how these supplements work because people are doing taking all this stuff they're taking garlic cinnamon friggin turmeric uh red yeast rice extract all right so so let's let's talk about this actual study this is a double blinded randomized controlled trial they had 199 subjects the average age was 63.3 the median ldl uh, cholesterol level was 128. It actually had to be between 70 and 189. Basically, if it was higher than that, they're like, ooh, we, you probably need to be treated with some additional medication depending on your actual risk. And if it was lower than 70, they were like, yeah, so we don't expect any of this stuff to actually work because your cholesterol level, your LDL cholesterol level is low and uh, you're good to go. Uh, they had, could have no personal history of heart disease. They could not currently be on statins or any other lipid lowering therapy, and they could not be taking any of the supplements within the trial already. So they got randomized to one of the following interventions, five milligrams of resuvastatin, which uh, listeners might know as Crestor, and that is a baby dose. That is like a, a breath of Crestor, like a burp of Crestor. <laughs> uh, so not the actual dose is usually like 30, 40 milligrams, I think, for like... Well, the highest intensity would be uh, usually upwards of 40 milligrams, um, yeah. which would be used for the highest risk patients. But, yeah. um, you know, for people who are, you know, not super, super high risk, and I want to use this medicine for them, then five or 10 milligrams is not unusual for me to use for reasons that will become clear when we talk about what it did in this study. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, or they got placebo, or they got fish oil, 2,400 milligrams of fish oil, or they got cinnamon, 2,400 milligrams. I assume that was a capsule. Like they didn't actually say that in the study, but I assume they weren't not just chewing like, on sticks. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, or they took garlic that had 5,000 micrograms of allicin, uh, or they took turmeric with uh, curcumin and bioparine, 4,500 milligrams of that, or they took plant sterols, uh, 1,600 milligrams. And you note that the dosage here was a little low um, for what plant sterols are normally dosed at. Uh, what is the normal dose for plant sterols? Do you know of him? Well, so there's a bunch of different kinds. Basically, plant sterols are kind of like cholesterol are for us, but the plant version. And so there is evidence for sure, and, and we'll get into this a little bit um, later as well, that supplementing the diet with plant sterols, or as they're sometimes known as phytosterols, in that they come from plants, um, can reduce blood cholesterol levels. There's yeah. uh, some compli complex mechanisms in the gut with how they mess with absorption and excretion of certain cholesterol, things like that. Um, and so there, there are multiple different kinds, uh, but definitely I think that um, insofar as it is possible to see a lipid lowering effect from them, the you you know you would see a stronger effect from a higher dose uh, mm -hmm. than was given in the study. And they finally, the last arm of this was the red yeast rice extract. This uh, they took twenty four hundred milligrams of that. And uh, if you've listened to a couple of our previous podcasts where we talk about red yeast rice extract, the active ingredient there, uh, there it's a. A uh, number of types of monocolons, particularly monocolon K, uh, which was the same active ingredient in lovastatin. Um, in any case, it basically that got pulled from the market because lovastatin was already on the market as a prescription drug. And so 
red yeast rice extract was kind of banned. Although if you go on Amazon or wherever, you can find this stuff and uh, we'll talk about why maybe that's not the greatest idea if you're trying to treat elevated uh, cholesterol numbers. Uh, and so what do they what do they do? They basically took a fasting lipid panel, a complete metabolic panel, and a high sensitive uh, C-reactive protein uh, at the beginning and the end of the study. And it was basically a month long, 28 days. Uh, Austin, just briefly, what is a high sensitivity C-reactive protein and when would you obtain this? Yeah, so this is a blood test that uh, in broad strokes is what we call a nonspecific marker of inflammation. Um, it is something that has some interesting origins, why it's called C-reactive protein and things like that. There's some backstory because it was observed to be elevated in certain kinds of infections. Uh, but in general, it's not uh, specific for infection. It's more of just anything that causes uh, increases in inflammation. And we know from other data in the research world of heart disease that patients who have high levels of inflammation, um, they're at higher risk of having heart, you know, uh, cardiovascular events, heart attacks, strokes, things like that, compared with people who have lower levels of inflammation. And just to, to tack on one thing here is that some folks will say cholesterol doesn't matter at all. It is actually the inflammation. And this is something I also address in part three of the cholesterol article series on the website. There are data that basically look at four kinds of patients, patients who have high LDL levels, high cholesterol and high inflammation, who have low cholesterol and high inflammation, <laughs> who have high cholesterol and low inflammation, and then who have low levels of both. And the spectrum pans out pretty much exactly as you would expect. People who have high levels of both are at the highest risk. People who have low levels of both are at the lowest risk. And people who have you know, one way or the other on either variable, they fall somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. So it actually appears that both of these things matter. Um, and so that's kind of what this protein is and why it would be measured. Um, there's also other research on pharmaceutical, you know, medication interventions and lifestyle interventions and that specifically aimed at lowering this and their impact on heart disease risk, which, you know, have some mixed, mixed results. And then, um, yeah, the study you said on day zero and day 28, um, which some might say, is that too short? And honestly, I would say no, uh, particularly <laughs> for, you know, when I initiate somebody on some form of, you know, cholesterol lowering or lipid lowering therapy like rosuvastatin, um, or if they make a very radical lifestyle change, um, it is unsurprising to me, like I'm happy to recheck blood lipids in four weeks, in the four to six week range. And I expect to see a pretty substantial impact from that by that time point. It does yep. not take like six months for these things to, to manifest or to maximize. Yeah. But if you were going to evaluate hard outcomes, like major adverse cardiac event or heart attack or something like that, you'd look, want to follow this them for you'd years. You'd have to have a much bigger trial and follow it for much longer. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So what happened in the study? So adherence was high. Only four participants out of the 199 took less than 70% of the assigned doses of whatever supplement or medication they were randomized to. Uh, as far as what it did to the LDL cholesterol level, rosuvastatin lowered LDL cholesterol by 37.9%. Placebo lowered cholesterol by 2.6%. Fish oil lowered cholesterol by 3.4%. Cinnamon increased cholesterol by 0.4%, basically stayed the same. Garlic increased cholesterol by 5.1%, uh, not looking good for the old garlic here. Uh, turmeric and curcumin with biopurine uh, decreased cholesterol by 1.3% and plant sterols decreased cholesterol by 4.4%. The red yeast rice extract decreased cholesterol by 6.6%, which again is a fraction of the 37.9% that rosuvastatin lowered cholesterol by. And again, you would actually expect red yeast rice extract to do better 
It's like, look, if it's got that monocolon K in it, which is the active ingredient in uh, Lovastatin, and it's got enough of it in there, whew, should be should be doing some work. Uh, the problem is that when you actually look at you know how much monocolon K is in the red yeast rice extract, you actually take a bunch of different preparations of red yeast rice extract and test how much monocolon K is in them. The content ranges all over the map from 0.1 milligrams per capsule up to 10 milligrams per capsule. So you don't really know what you're getting because again, this is a supplement that's not supposed to be being sold right now yet, you know, some, uh, unscrupulous distributors are, are still in fact selling it. And further, uh, four of the preparations when they actually tested the monocolon K, uh, content had elevated levels of citronin, which is a potentially nephrotoxic mycotoxin. So a toxin made from fungus, uh, 10 out of 10 would not recommend. As far as total cholesterol levels, rosuvastatin lowered total cholesterol by 24.4%, whereas all others had less than a 3% effect on total cholesterol. With respect to triglycerides, rosuvastatin lowered triglycerides by 19.3%, and all others had less than a 5% effect on triglycerides. And in fact, cinnamon and red yeast rice extract actually raised triglycerides. Uh, and high, sensitive, uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, rosuvastatin reduced that value by 5.7%, whereas none of the other supplements had statistically significant reductions comparatively. So uh, looks like a big win for resuvastatin and a big L for everything else. And uh, I don't know that I would recommend, you know, attempting to take that L if, uh, if I was recommending folks to, to try to manage this. So yeah, I liked that uh, they were basically did the, did the study that we all wanted to see like, all right, well, how does resuvastatin or an actual statin medication at a low dose actually compare to some of these other things, fish oil, cinnamon, garlic, turmeric. Cause people ask about this stuff all the time. Like, well, I heard about curcumin or turmeric or biopurine or like, what if I took them all together? Would that be like akin to taking a low dose statin answer? No not answer. Even, no, not even a little bit, <laughs> not even close. That's the other thing, right? It's like, it's like definitively now we can say like, we would not expect market changes in any parameter we care about related to lipids, uh, by taking those supplements. Um, yeah, the, we talked a little bit about the plant sterile limitation. You want to, you want to go, go into some more detail here? Yeah. So there's a couple things about this. One, one thing that I'll mention first is, as you mentioned earlier, when you were citing the, the results, you were mentioning like the, the point estimates, basically like the, the average value that was changed for each of those subjects, but there are error bars around all of those. Mm-hmm. And effectively for all the supplements, none of them, uh, basically the, when you account, f- you know, for, for the statistical comparison showed any significant improvement over the placebo. And so I really liked one of the, you know, data outputs from this that showed individual subject level changes, which I've mentioned before, uh, is one of my favorite things to see in studies, particularly like when we look at strength training, resistance training researches, what happened to each individual person in the study? Did they get better? Did they get worse? What happened? And so even in the placebo group, so, so, you know, I shared this, um, this graph on my, my story this week, cause it was very, very striking. Um, when you look at the placebo group, there's a whole range. Some people from start to finish had a substantial decrease in cholesterol. Some people had no change. Some people had an increase in cholesterol. This is just typical expected normal biological variability. And then when you look at every single supplement, it's the same pattern. Some people decreased, some people didn't change, some people increased. Um, and then when you look at the resubostatin group, everybody decreased <laughs> and everybody decreased markedly. And it's like, yeah, the medicine that hits the pathway that we know, you know, regulates this, this, uh, this blood level, um, it works. And none of these other things did that, uh, reliably. However, what's interesting to think about is like, when I looked at that graph showing individual subject level things, I could look at each bar, right. And I could look at that and imagine it as an individual person. 
And imagine the person who took one of the supplements and happened to be the person whose level went down. Mm -hmm. It's like, I could see that person, of course, coming to the conclusion, quote, it worked for me. And then Mm -hmm. they go and they start sharing this information, right? When we saw the exact same pattern happen in the placebo group. So no, it did not, in fact, work for you. It probably did nothing. You could have taken nothing or any of these other things, and you may well have seen the same exact effect uh, just because of, you know, whatever normal random biological variability, or perhaps you inadvertently made some kind of lifestyle change over the course of the study or whatever the case is that led levels to, to decrease independent of, of what you were taking. So like if none of these other things did much better than the placebo group, then no, it didn't work for you just in the same way that if your levels went up, it probably didn't cause you harm either um, for, you know, for the most part, unless we had stronger data showing that compared to placebo levels reliably went, you know, significantly higher. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I would interpret that and, and just caution people about, uh, about these kind of things because of how easy it would be to extrapolate your individual experience um, and say, well, it worked for me. So there you go. It's like, well, maybe a little more complicated than that. <laughs> yeah. I really liked their take home. This is a direct quote from the paper. In the single-center, prospective, randomized, single-blind clinical trial of patients with elevated LDL cholesterol and increased 10-year uh, ASCVD risk, a low-dose statin taken daily lowered LDL-C significantly more than placebo, fish oil, cinnamon, garlic, turmeric, plant sterols, and red yeast rice. No supplements significantly lowered LDL-C compared with placebo. No supplement demonstrated a change in other lipid or inflammatory biomarkers suggestive of potential cardiovascular benefit compared with placebo. And it's like, boom, nail in coffin, end of story. I'm yeah. not saying we don't need to study this any further because, you know, yeah, you would prefer I think to it's, be- I, I mean, I think it's fine to just like set red yeast rice aside, kick it out. It Like there's no, <laughs> given that the active ingredient of red is yeast rice is effectively a statin. <laughs> And you're choosing to take a supplement that is just an unregulated statin and you don't have an idea of how much you're taking, what the dose mm-hmm. is, then it could be contaminated. There's literally no reason to do that. It's not yeah. better just because it sounds natural. Just throw it away. Right? Yeah, just- the, the plant sterile thing, again, as I mentioned, there is some evidence that they can lower blood cholesterol levels. However, um, I generally don't recommend them for any of my patients. Um, there is a fraction of the population, I've talked about this before, who are kind of hyper absorbers of sterols from the diet, be it cholesterol or these plant sterols and people who absorb too much of these into their circulation. um, It is actually associated with higher rates of cardiovascular disease, taking these plant sterols or phytosterols. There's a weird genetic condition called cytosterolemia or phytosterolemia. These are people who have genetic mutations and certain transporters in their gut and they just like suck all this stuff up and then it all goes straight into plaques in in their their vasculature. So I don't recommend plant sterols. I I don't recommend red yeast rice. And then now we have evidence also that these other things, garlic, turmeric, you know, cinnamon, et cetera, et cetera, are not going to have the kind of impact that we're looking for on, on blood lipid levels. And you literally can take a whiff of something like rosuvastatin. I mean, 2.5 milligrams, five milligrams, and get a pretty substantial uh, lipid lowering effect. And the idea, and I do this all the time in practice, is those very low dose treatments, they come with the lowest risk of experiencing Mm -hmm. the side effects that people are worried about. And if I want to get an even bigger effect while minimizing the risk of side effects, there's also evidence on this combining multiple low dose resubistatin, 2.5, 5, 10, something like that with something like azetamide. 10 milligrams. That's also something that is extremely well tolerated. And you, and there's evidence uh, basically showing that people, um, despite it being two pills instead of one, actually are able to stick to it better. They discontinue it less and they get a bigger blood lipid lowering effect compared to taking super high doses of statins. So for just people who are dose, not yeah. ultra high risk, like who've had heart attacks before, who unfortunately just really 
should be on the highest doses if they can tolerate them. For people who are not in that situation, but who need to get their levels down using you know, medication therapy. Um, I am definitely biased towards using low doses of combination treatment to get that down rather than maximize cranking up the dose of one as much as somebody can tolerate before considering anything else. Yeah. And I want to be clear, like neither of us would recommend taking a statin or other medication to lower lipids, you know, in isolation without also trying to address physical activity, dietary pattern, lifestyle, et cetera. All the things that are in the cholesterol article part two, I believe tackles all that stuff. What to do with your diet, what to do with your lifestyle, et cetera. Yep. Yeah. Why not both? Yep. Exactly. If you need it. Cool. All right. So that paper is linked in the description below as with all of our other resources. Again, this is episode 199 with Dr. Austin Baraki. This is our November, 2022 research review and our third and final paper for this research review is the validity and reliability of facial rating of perceived exertion scales for training load monitoring. This was by uh, Vanders Ward uh, and and his research group from the Netherlands. This was published in the Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. Uh, This was actually from October of 2022. So I misspoke earlier saying that all of these papers were from November. This one was actually from last month, uh, but still very, very recent. Uh, Okay, Baraki, do you remember the first time that you were training and you noticed that your eyeballs were popping out of their sockets? <laughs> I don't know that I noticed it myself. <laughs> you, know, like, you, you like took a video, you're like, bro, that is some severe ex <laughs> Like, What is going on? Um, okay. So basically some background here. Um, RPE, uh, you guys know the that we use RPE or rating of perceived exertion to not only measure how hard a particular task was, like a particular set of an exercise. So you squatted five reps. How hard was it using a scale one to 10? And often, but not always, that proxy is related to the repetitions left in reserve. So RPE8 would be two reps left in reserve. RPE9 would be one rep left in reserve. RPE10 would be zero reps left in reserve. We also use RPE scale for rating how hard an entire workout was. Um, and we usually use the one to 10 scale, 10 being that was a really hard workout, one being that didn't really do anything at all and everything in between. You can formulate an RPE scale using any sort of terms, values, pictures, descriptions that you want as far as the validity of that scale. Well, that's to be determined. You'd have to test that on a substantially or significantly sized uh, sample size and then um, you know report your findings. Uh, so yeah. Usually for rating uh, training load uh, or monitoring training load, you're looking more at session RPE uh, ratings and duration and how that changes over time. Uh, Typically, when this has been studied in the literature, they use either the Borg uh, RPE scale, which is rated from 6 to 20, or uh, a modified version of that scale, which ranges from 1 to 10. That's what we use. Uh, In this particular study, they were trying to figure out if we add facial emoticons So the stuff on your iPhone or other smartphone, you know, smiley face, frowny face, red frowny face, like did that actually add anything uh, or make it easier for people to rate these things more accurately um, and therefore give a better insight into what the actual training load was. Now, before we get into this, when I first read the title, I go... They're just videoing these people and looking at it like their facial strain. Like, were they grimacing? Did they have uh, exophthalmos? Did uh, or their eyes popping out of their socket? Did they have like uh, any sort of other sort of discernible facial features? I was looking forward to seeing some pictures of people at the bottom of the squat or something or like that. <laughs> it's just like, what did their face look like? Uh, but they didn't. This was all about emojis. Um, but as far as eye stuff, just because we are talking about Baraki's eyes, and I'll link the 
the uh, April Fool's post in the description below. It's pretty pretty humorous. Hopefully, no one's reading that and not looking at the date and being like, <laughs> "This is serious." <laughs> but it, it's it's a one to ten scale with Baraki's face in different shades of red and grimace. And I, I think the actual ten, I had to pump the uh, the the red up so, a little bit. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, if that was your real face, <laughs> I, <laughs> ten out of ten would recommend clinical workup on that. Uh, but yeah, stuff can happen to your eyes when you train. I was just more curious, like what would happen since we were talking about Baraki's eyes. There are uh, a few different interesting case reports. Uh, what happens to the eyes during training. So one thing that's been reported in the literature is called orbital emphysema. And I know what people are thinking, well, emphysema, that's that's lung stuff. How does the lung stuff get to the eye stuff? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, so yeah, basically you can have a fracture or otherwise rupture of the bony skeleton surrounding your eye. That's called the orbit and free air gets into either the bone and or muscular tissues or soft tissues around the eye or even the eye itself. And so free air goes into uh, one or more of these structures. This all often happens during an orbital fracture due to trauma, or this can happen during vigorous nose blowing. It is the season. So if you're a vigorous nose blower, you know, and your eye starts swelling up and you get a bunch of pain every time you touch it, ooh, maybe go get that checked out. Anyway, there was a 23 year old dude who had a sudden left periorbital swelling. So the area around his left eye got really swollen uh, after lifting weights. And the picture they had on this guy in the case, in the case report, dear God, <laughs> I mean, that's one of those things though. Yeah. If, if that happened, I'd be like, I'm going to the hospital. Total freak accident. Hundred, Yeah. And basically he had orbital emphysema. Uh, he had crepitus uh, and swelling in the periorbital area and 10 out of 10 pain to palpation. So mm. basically his eye just huge, swollen, super tender and painful. Uh, and yeah, they gave him antibiotics just to make sure there was no like infection that seeded the area. They observed him and it completely resolved by three days. So, you know, cool. I don't know if he was back to lifting weights on day four, but yeah, his discharge photo, he looked completely normal, handsome, handsome dude. Uh, <laughs> another thing that's been reported with weightlifting is called percher retinopathy. This is sudden visual loss after trauma due to retinal hemorrhages. So, uh, basically some of the vasculature in the eye, uh, either ruptures or there's some sort of, uh, uh issue, uh, related to blood flow to the eye. This can happen from a clot being thrown from a, from a long bone fracture or compressive injuries of the trunk or rapid deceleration of the head. So if you've got a potentially like a motorcycle crash, for example, all, <laughs> all of these things, uh, have been reported it's usually bilateral, actually not just unilateral, but this guy was a 17 year old male. Yeah, with the sudden loss of left eye vision after weightlifting. And they were like, maybe this is due to Valsalva. But interestingly, they didn't do anything. They just basically ruled out everything else and said, uh, we'll observe you. And it resolved on its own. So interesting, but not really <laughs> related to this study. Yeah. But I, I went down that rabbit hole. Uh, just briefly, as far as what does exercise do to like ocular physiology? Uh, basically, there's no robust data on exercise and eye disease. That's so when people are like, what does exercise do to glaucoma? What does exercise do to, you know, retinal detachment? What does exercise do with cataracts, et cetera? So basically all of the longitudinal data sets that we have on those uh, common eye diseases do not in report physical activity levels. So we just don't really know, even like correlational data, like, oh, people who exercise more had less incidence of glaucoma or they're less uh, sort of events related to glaucoma, for example. Um, we know that uh, like the intraocular pressure. So the pressure within the eyeball uh, tends to go down during dynamic exercise. So that's locomotive type stuff, running, walking, cycling, swimming, rowing, et cetera. Uh, but intraocular pressure goes up during isometric activity, like hand grip for something, or if you were bracing right before a squat. Uh, and so in resistance training, intraocular pressure goes up a bunch, not only because your blood pressure is up, goes up, 
as it does with all forms of exercise, but also because you're doing a Valsalva. Uh, interestingly, the more fit someone is, the less, the lower the actual increase is in intraocular pressure. Uh, but this is concerning um, for folks who have glaucoma, which uh, has been described as like ocular hypertension or ocular high, high blood pressure. Uh, the outcomes of like resistance training, weightlifting, or intense exercise on glaucoma, uh, not really sure that there's any effect, but there are higher rates of physical inactivity in those with glaucoma. And so whether that's correlational, whether that's causal, we don't really know, but I definitely have had a DM conversation or multiple DM conversations with people who have either a client with glaucoma, a family member with glaucoma, or they personally have it. And they're like, can I lift? And I'm like, I mean, there are risks to being insufficiently active and those are well, well studied. There are benefits to meeting or exceeding the physical activity guidelines. Those are well documented. And we just don't know what happens with the actual disease process of glaucoma uh, with respect to exercise. It just doesn't appear like it modifies the disease process much it, itself. Um, and certainly I would expect if there was this big risk of like bad outcomes with glaucoma, we would see a signal in the literature it's kind of the same way I feel about pregnancy and exercise, right? If there was like this huge risk of exercise on, you know, bad outcomes during pregnancy, particularly since a lot of uh, people have gotten into high intensity exercise via CrossFit and, and other sort of forms uh, recently, we would see a signal, a bunch of case reports like, you know, person had, you know, worsening glaucoma during from exercise. And it's like, yeah, we don't see any of that. Yeah. So I, I wonder a couple other things. I mean, glaucoma is quite treatable in general. There's a mm -hmm. lot of medications that are used for it. There's some other procedural stuff that, you know, ophthalmologists do that is beyond what I, <laughs> what I am f very familiar with. No, tenometer. And then additionally, as we've talked about in other contexts, like I do also, I can't help but wonder if it's one of those situations as well, similar to, you know, high regular blood pressure, if it matters how you got there, not just 100%. what the pressure is, right? If, uh, if you got there cause you're sitting on your couch and, and, and you just have glaucoma and that's, you know, your, your, your pressure in your eye is going up, um, versus, uh, versus via exercise. So I suspect that there's probably a difference based on how you got there too. So, yeah, there was one study where they compared intraocular pressure during a bench press, they were lying down versus, uh, uh, a standing squat and it was oh higher gosh. in the bench press. I guess just like blood pooling in the head. <laughs> so like positional kind of thing, but yeah, any, in any case, probably the biggest risk to like bad eye stuff happening from exercise has to do with sports injuries. Uh, you just think about racket sports trauma. trauma. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in the United States, particularly due to the comp, you know, the, the participation rates, uh, large ball sports, baseball, football, soccer, et cetera, just people not wearing eyewear and then getting smacked in the eye. Or if you're like me, you know, and you're just golfing and, uh, you get, you take a ball to the eye. <laughs> not not a great experience 10 out of 10 would not recommend uh okay so enough on that aside let's get back to the study so this study was basically done to evaluate the validity of a 5 and 10 point facial rpe scales as compared to the 10 point uh session rpe scale um so again this is not like reps in reserve this is more like a global rating of how hard the session was uh, using a one to 10 scale, 10 being the hardest, one being the easiest. Uh, so they had 61 individuals, 44 women, 17 men, and they rated 12 workout sessions uh, over six to seven weeks. Uh, 17 were untrained, 19 were deemed recreationally trained, and 12 were trained based on power output. And how they tested this is they put them on this cycle ergometer, which was called Excalibur, which uh, looks a lot like that Monarch Wingate yeah. bike that we had Mine's in my garage. <laughs> They basically just had them do this test to see like what their power output was and then stratified them 
into untrained, recreationally trained, or trained. Uh, so yeah, they asked these individuals to rate their perceived exertion for the entire training session, um, by asking them, how was their workout? And they used one of three scales. They either used this 10 point facial, uh, uh, recognition, uh, scale, a five point, uh, facial recognition scale or the standard one to 10. And, uh, I got the, the visual put up here. Uh, it's in the paper that's, uh, that I've linked also. So the 10 point is basically like, again, just zero to 10, zero is rest. 10 is maximal, and then every value in between. So one is really easy, three is moderate, seven is really hard, nine is really, really hard, and again, 10 is maximal. The five-point uh, facial uh, uh, recognition scale basically uses five different emojis. It's got the smiley face, which reminds me of Tom Campitelli. That's easy. The two, number two is the emoji with the flat, the flat smile, and that's sort of hard. The third uh, ranking uh, three is the slight frowny face emoji number four is a frowny face with i guess it's like a it's like a grimace kind of yeah and then five is like the very angry grimace and yeah. also re- color-coded dark red and the, the 10 point facial recognition scale is an expanded version of that it's just instead of one to five it's one to ten but same emojis so after uh uh Basically, they did, uh, again, 12 total sessions uh, during this period. Uh, at the, They either used the 1 to 10 scale, the 5-point facial recognition scale, or the 10-point facial recognition scale. Um, these workouts were home-based. They were all bodyweight exercises. They had low, medium, and high-intensity uh, workouts. Um, all of the different uh study group. So untrained, recreationally trained and trained got exposed to all of the different intensities. They also monitored their heart rate to try to see what the correlation was between heart rate and those facial recognition, a uh, sort of ratings. Um, and yet they used a random sequence of intensity. So it wasn't just like low, medium, hard, low, medium, hard. It was all over the place. So what did they find? Yeah. So they basically compared the results to this one to 10 scale. That's the gold standard. It's been validated in a number of different data sets. Uh, they used this term called the intraclass correlation coefficient, which basically re- measures the reliability of their exertion ratings compared to this gold standard. Uh, we don't need to go into the details here, but the higher the value, this they usually range from zero to one, the higher the value, the more closely, you know, whatever new scale you're using uh, compares to the gold standard. So if you had a intraclass correlation coefficient, an ICC value of 0.9, you're like, oh, that's pretty good. And if it was 0.1, you'd be like, hmm, pretty bad. All right. So what did they find? There across all groups and workouts, there was a moderate agreement with the five point facial recognition scale uh, and a good agreement. So slightly higher 0.75 of the 10 uh, point facial recognition scale uh, as compared to the regular one to 10 scale without the emoticons. Um, there was a slight bias towards a higher RPE rating with the five point scale. Uh, it also appeared that there was some poor validity in the five and the 10 point uh, facial recognition scale for untrained. So people who had not exercised uh, that much before or weren't very fit, but it was pretty good in recreational and the trained groups. Uh, in fact, for the uh, 10 point facial uh, or emoji containing RPE scale, the ICC value was 0.8 and 0.85 for the recreational and the trained groups, uh, respectively. The correlation for these scales and the heart rate was not that good, just overall not that good, but that's not really the point. We're not really using these our subjective RPE uh, sort of scales to correlate to heart rate, which again is just one of many values that kind of go into how hard 
particular exercise session was. Uh, as far as what users preferred, uh, it looks like a third of them preferred the five-point facial uh, emoji containing scale. A third favored the 10-point um, facial uh, emoji containing scale. And a third favored the regular 1 to 10 scale, so kind of all over the place. Um, it is interesting to me, this this paper kind of came to the conclusion like, yeah, you can use this if people are trained, recreationally trained or, or well-trained. Uh, because my takeaway was something completely different. It's like, we, it doesn't really matter what the value is that you get that, that it's spit out here at the end of, you know, it's like, okay, they ranked the session RPE as four and that uh, correlated to this emoji. I don't really care. I just want to use the same scale over and over and over again and kind of whatever the, the preferred tool was that seemed to be the one that correlated the best and that's what i would use as a coach right if i was trying to get someone to use session rpe and they were like i don't get this one to ten it doesn't make any sense to me i might use one with emojis (laughs) just because maybe they identify with that a little bit better or if i if all of our templates came with like emoji scales and they were like i don't get the the emojis don't make any sense i would just use a one to ten scale or one to five scale um because again i'm not really looking at like what are the actual numbers? I'm more just like, did you rate every session a five or a 10, you know? And like, how does that change over time? And so, you know, I think it's, it's useful to have some session RPE data. If you're trying to figure out like, am I applying too high of a dose, too much training stress, something like that. And I'd like to keep it consistent. And I'd like people to use a system that they feel comfortable with and understand that shared language that we're trying to develop between coach and client. So do we yeah, need there emojis? could be issues. Oh. I mean, there could be issues with literacy, with numeracy, with cross-cultural communication, depending on depending on how the the kind of client that you're trying to coach. If you're if you're a coach, they may be you know from a different culture. They may have never exercised before, whatever the case is. And so you know, this actually could be something like this could be a, a valid tool to try to communicate the uh, you know the effort that you are seeking. And again, it's like similar to a lot of the time our conversation and like most people who are training the absolute you know accuracy of their rpe ratings are are much less important um compared to consistent use kind of kind of over time like i do not think it's worth agonizing over whether that was a a 7 or a 7.5 or something yeah Um, i don't even bother getting to that level of granularity myself in in my own training i'm like yeah that was probably about hard enough (laughs) close enough close enough and yeah i think if emojis help people get to the hard enough or prevent them from going too hard. Yeah, then that's a win. And if the emojis yeah. are a distraction, let's go emojiless. But yeah. you know, maybe some of our new templates will have uh, <laughs> will have emojis baked in. I just wonder how that open. Like, what if you don't update your phone? And so, like the the thing pops up as like break. the question mark. <laughs> You're just well, like, I think emojis uh, are pretty much here to stay at this point. I think that's the unlikely to be an issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll come up with some different ones. I'll make a, a Baraki exertion scale. It's just emojis. Like the 10 is going to be the devil guy. With like <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. All right. Uh, anything else you want to leave people with, Dr. B? Nothing for now. I think we're both uh, excited to get back on the seminar circuit here starting this upcoming weekend. And we'll have some new content from that coming. So people can look out for that. That's right. So this has been episode 199 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. This has been the November 2022 research review. Uh, special thanks to Dr. Austin Brocky for joining us here this evening. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Uh, we'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.